All right. Let's pick up here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. And I had a good time two weeks ago, a, a wonderful time, to be honest with you, teaching on uh, the Holy Spirit. Um, and I'm just calling, you know, I couldn't think of a better name. I'm just calling it Don't Be Ignorant. And that's based off 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul tells the, the Gentile group of believers there, And I'll, as I'm turning there, he told them, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. And we see through 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, um, Paul addressing and teaching them um, proper operation of the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to try to briefly throw, throw some things out there that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and then pick up today. Um, number one uh, would just be this verse here, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul tells the church uh, to not be ignorant concerning the operation of what we call the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so that alone is quite uh, interesting uh, that Paul tells uh, this carnal church here this. Now, think, you, you think, though, about how much of the Christian world is ignorant of this. You know, it, it's remarkable how... Um, I, don't, I can't think... I'm not trying to be mean, because I... The more I learn, the more I realize I don't know about... You know what I'm saying? But there, there's an implicit... Uh, a clear instruction here. Don't be ignorant of this. You know what I mean? It's, it's really interesting that Paul tells them this. And you get over into chapters 13 and 14, and he talks about the operation of certain gifts of the Spirit within the church. Now, for example, you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, verse 40, and Paul tells them, for, literally, forbid not speaking with tongues. And yet there are many groups that are quite proud and adamant and strong in their stance of, we forbid speaking in tongues. However, they would relate that or articulate that, but that's definitely... Uh, a thing that's presented a lot, and, and yet we have Paul giving clear instruction. Now, notice Paul did not say in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, or 14 that these gifts are only for the apostles, we apostles. He never said that. He never said they're only for apostles and prophets. He never said they're only for the early church. If you remember, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, 28. Paul says, God has placed these things in the church so as long as there is still a church on, in planet earth, then by necessity, there's still a need, just by default, there's still a necessity for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'll, I'll try not to go too fast here. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul tells that church, quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesying. And so we see prophecy in 1 Corinthians 12 uh, and 13 and 14. We see that prophecy is one of what we, the nine, what we call gifts of the Spirit. And, and again, we're going to cover that uh, at some point. Probably won't get into that today. And so Paul tells them, forbid not speaking with tongues and despise not prophesying. All right, so the clear instructions, don't hold back from these things, don't teach against these things, don't shy away from these things. 
And really interesting, and we'll look more at this in a little bit, uh, perhaps. But in, for example, and again, just throwing out some groundwork here, and then we'll really get into uh, some more specific direction. Um, but like First uh, Corinthians uh, fourteen, Paul says, "Despise not prophesying." So there's there is a vein of thought that says prophesying is just preaching. Now we we looked at this, and I hope we were clear enough about it a couple of weeks ago. There is a vein of thought that says prophesying was where God would speak divinely, divine utterance through people, but really now prophecy is just preaching. Now, interestingly, more times than not, groups that believe that also say women aren't supposed to preach. But you turn to Acts chapter 21, and we see uh, Stephen, excuse me, Philip the evangelist, said that he had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And they were never rebuked for it. They, they were never told otherwise. They were never told women can't preach. None of that nonsense. And so it's like, which is it? Is prophecy speaking a divine utterance, not necessarily preaching? Or can women preach? Because in that, in that vein of thought, there's a clear contradiction. You know what I mean? And so, and hopefully as time goes on here, we'll look at some of the stuff about uh, the thing I usually throw out there very quickly is I do very much so believe that women can preach. For example, uh, the book of Galatians uh, tells us in Christ, in the born-again person, there's neither male nor female. So out of that born-again spirit, it's not your natural gender that qualifies you before God. It's that new creation that's on the inside of you that comes as a free gift. Salvation. Amen? And then we, we also looked at Jesus after his resurrection. He appeared first to two women and said, go and tell them. Go proclaim. Go preach. That's what, that's what they did. They shared. And it's, it's, so, um, it's so clearly biblical that the thing that women can't preach is just, it's so untrue. Um, I, I don't even know how to, it's just not scriptural. I, it's kind of, it's hard, for me, sometimes it's hard to try to establish something that's so clearly biblical, like how do you, to me it would be like trying to argue, well, is salvation for today or is salvation for women? Like, I don't know how a person could, and I understand that if you've, if you've been given that belief system, I understand there, there are a few scriptures that we can clear up later on. Probably not today, but bear with us. I'm not crazy. Okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll pick up on that later. Now, um, turn with me if you would. Well, I want you to see this. Stay in First Corinthians. We're about to turn. Once again, chapter 12, verse 1, and we'll get into a more structured, systematic thought here. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Once again, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I would not have you ignorant. Now look down here. Um, let's look at verse 7. Paul says this, But the manifestation of the Spirit, or the gifts of the Spirit in manifestation, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to the apostles of the early church and no one else. Of course not. To every man, to profit with all. All right? Now, we're not going to cover this today, but because I keep referencing it so much, I'm going to read the next few verses, and this is what, what we call the nine gifts of the Spirit. Okay? So let's look here. He says, They're given to every man to profit with all. Next verse. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge, by the same Spirit. Verse 9. To another, faith, or as some translations say, special faith, or the gift of faith. 
by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. And to, uh, lastly, to another, the interpretation of tongues. So right there is a list of what we call the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we will cover those more as time goes on. Um, but let me just say, all nine gifts of the Holy Spirit are supernatural. What did Paul say? They're manifestations of the Spirit. All right? So, for example, you think about, well, the gifts of healings means doctors. Well, God bless doctors, but no, it doesn't. It's a supernatural gift of healing. It's not something you go to school and learn in the natural. It's a manifestation of the Spirit. All right? So it's not a manifestation of any type of natural training. It's totally supernatural. And we'll look more at that. Um, as time goes on here. But I just want you to see that, and I want you to see that all of these are supernatural, and they are certainly adamantly for the New Testament church, as we've already covered some and will continue to do today. Um, and let's just look at the next verse. But all these work that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Now, I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 16. I want to show you something here. Mark chapter 16. And you may or may not know this. There is debate today on uh, whether Mark 16 was a part of the original uh, canon or whether it was added later. I'm not really trying to get into that. It's in the book. And um, Mark chapter 16, the last part of it, the, last, the verses we're going to look at. And certainly they are consistent with Scripture nonetheless. So Mark 16, I want you to notice something here. Starting in verse 14, Jesus says this, Afterward he appeared unto the eleven, Mark 16, 14, Afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat to eat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Verse 15, And he said unto them, Now check this out, Go you into all the world and preach the good news, the gospel, to every person. Now check this out, verse 16, He who believes and is baptized, shall be saved. Side note, that is not water baptism. That's Romans chapter 6, baptism into Christ. I, I was born again at 19 years old, um, but I believed in Jesus ever since I can remember. But I was never baptized into that belief. I never put that faith in Him. I believed it. Does that make sense? I believed in Him, but I never stepped into that belief. I was never baptized into that belief. There are multiple types of baptisms in the Scripture, and this one is, is the Romans chapter 6 and other places. It's not water baptism, They're, just so you know that. All right. He that believeth not shall be damned. Now check this out, verse 17. And these signs shall follow them that believe. Now to me that's powerful because, again, just, just setting a defense in a clear scriptural uh, validation and defense for the fact that these things, this power of God is still operative today. So notice he says, these signs will follow those who believe. So it does not say they will follow the only church, or the early church only. It does not say they will follow apostles and prophets. It does not say it will follow uh, a few special people and then go away somehow. It will follow those who believe. All right? Now, in my name... They shall cast out demons. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. 
<laughs> not that kind. They shall take up serpents, and, drink, and if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They'll lay hands on the sick, and they, they will recover. Now, just as she mentioned there, she said, forget that. Uh, and there are some of those old mainline old uh, branches of Pentecostaldom that uh, take that, what I would consider, I was going to say too literally, but they take it with the wrong slant is what I, you guys have seen this, heard of the snake handlers? <laughs> well, I don't know, but, you know. Now, now we see clearly in the book of Genesis um, that the Lord, after he tells them, here's everything, it's good, it's for you, have fun, just don't eat that fruit, and then who comes to them? What's the scripture say and, and tempts them and deceives them? The who? The serpent comes to them. The devil came. And so he comes to them. And then we see in Luke chapter 10, we see, we see this language clearly. In the book of Revelation, we see Satan referred to as a dragon repeatedly. And then in other places, we, we see Jesus talks about you'll tread upon, Luke chapter 10, serpents and scorpions. And so, in other words, evil powers, demonic powers associating uh, you understand that, that language, all right, with the devil and with demons. So that's all it means. So they'll take up serpents, or in other words, you will have authority in my name over demons. That's all that means. And then he says this, if you drink any deadly thing. Again, some of these, these the wrong thinking process there in some of the old mainline Pentecostal branches, they drink, uh, what is it, strychnine or something. You guys, have the snake candle in people? No? Well, they do. I, I've seen it on TV. And um, again, that's, that's not what it's saying here. All that means is divine protection. If you drink any deadly thing. doesn't mean go looking for it. But in other words, divine protection. And now, for example, we see in the book of Acts where Paul uh, actually did get bit by a viper, by a snake, and he shook it off. And they couldn't believe that it didn't kill him. And it didn't kill him because he was walking in, had a revelation of, and faith in the power of God on the inside of him. That doesn't mean we go looking for snakes to play with. And that doesn't mean we go intentionally drinking poisonous stuff. Amen. So I'm, I think all of you have more sense than that. I hope so. All right. Now look here. Then lastly, once again, he says, it shall not hurt you. They'll lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. The laying on of hands we see in the Old Testament and we also see in the New Testament repeatedly. For example... Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7, we have Jesus in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's really interesting to me if you connect that with the Old Testament. Moses goes up on the mountain to meet God. The people are afraid of God. They send Moses. Moses goes up. He comes down. Then he has to go up again, and he comes down later on. But both times that Moses went up on the mountain and then came back down, God stayed on the mountain. So there was that separation, that veil of spiritual death between God and man. All right, And then we see in the New Testament, God, Jesus, is up on the mountain in the, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. But in the New Covenant, God comes off the mountain to interact with people. I think that is just so neat. So Matthew 5, 6, 7, Jesus ends that message. The beginning of chapter 8, it says Jesus comes off the mountain, and the first thing he does is heal a leper. To me, that is just phenomenal in revealing the true nature of God. All right? So what's interesting is the Scripture teaches, he says, Lord, I know you can heal me if you're willing. And then Jesus clarified his will concerning healing. He says, it is my will, and thank God he's no respecter of persons. And Jesus touched him. So we see a laying on of hands. Then we read the book of Acts. We see um, where Paul would lay hands on people, and they would receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues through the laying on of hands. We see in Acts chapter 14 and 15. I, I know I'm going a little fast. I'll try to slow down as much as I can. Acts chapter 14 and 15, 
we see that Paul uh, was, um, he was, he stood in the office of a prophet, but then it says that the Lord spoke to the, the, the church leaders there and said, separate Paul and Barnabas unto the apostolic office, the apostolic ministry that I've called them to. And when they did that, it says they prayed and they laid hand, they ministered to her and they laid hands on them. So we see, just again, just throwing that out there so you'll see that this is, all these things here are descriptive of what should be New Testament operation. Laying on of hands, divine protection, baptism of the Holy Ghost with speaking in tongues, uh, all the things he mentions here. Now look at verse 19. It says, So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth, now check this out, and preached everywhere the Lord working with them. Aren't you glad? Not left. This isn't just us, man, trying to conjure this stuff up. And here's the beautiful part. He says, and confirming the word. So God's power confirms his word. So it's not about me trying to conjure up the ability to somehow make God move in, in dynamic supernatural power. God is longing to manifest his power to people. And it says he confirms the word. You know, I heard T.L. Osborne talk about this one time. And T.L., and I share this fairly often, uh, who had wonderful crusades of healings and miracles and salvations, uh, just uh, mass numbers of people. I, I, I'd like to find out when I get to heaven how many people uh, were healed and saved through his, him and his wife's ministry. But T.L. said that when he went to, like, for example, India is one place he was at a lot. He said he would go to India... And he said he never preached against their false gods. He said there is no power in preaching against false gods. He said the gospel is the power. And then he said, I don't even have to pray the power down. He said the gospel is the power. All I do is preach the gospel. And in so doing, I'm preaching the power and releasing the power forth. And that's how the deliverances and salvations and healings and miracles would happen. It's, it's almost too easy because we like it more complicated. Legalism's told us it's got to be harder than that. You know what I mean? And so, thank God, you know, God has uh, made it simple for the whosoever will. Who, whoever believes these things in my name, they can walk in this type of power. All right? Now, turn with me again, John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Show you a couple of things here. Just once again, uh, establishing clearly from Scripture uh, that the power of God, the supernatural power of God, is still for today. Right? And we'll look at some more powerful things as we go on here. Uh, before I forget, um, let me tell you, um, I listened to um, a debate, a Christian debate, um, between two uh, ministers. Um, and if you want to, it, it might... Um, it might shed some light on these things for you um, and answer some things that maybe I don't say. Um, it was on YouTube, and the debate was between Dr. Michael Brown. So just go to YouTube, and then you can search for Dr. Now, this is, I can't remember the other gentleman's name, but if you type this in, you'll certainly find it. Dr. Michael Brown, debate charismatic gifts. Dr. Michael Brown, debate 
charismatic gifts. Really good. It's, it's a really... Um, because I won't say everything in ways... Um, you know, with Kara and I, I, I can think of time and time again, you know, I, I'd learn something or the Lord would show me something and I would come and tell her about it and she'd hear me talk about it for six months. And then one day she would hear Creflo or somebody on TV or somebody else say the same thing another way. And then she would come to me and say, oh my God, they said da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I would say, I've been telling you that for six months. But, you know, you can hear it from another angle because we don't all think the same. So hearing things put another way can, can help us. So, so that debate is really cool. It's between Dr. Michael Brown, um, who is um, an apologist, and he's uh, in many ways a, a wonderful minister and a wonderful man of God. Um, quite interestingly, though, and let me just throw this out there for you, because um, one thing I'm, I'm pretty big on and I try to share with you guys a lot is it's just, a, it's just a part of the package that sometimes we have to identify things that we consider to be error uh, and false doctrine. Um, you know, Paul told Timothy, and he said, command some, in, in other words, people who are teaching under Timothy's leadership, he said, charge them or command some that they teach no other doctrine. And then Paul went on and uh, explained, uh, uh, basically what it amounted to was trying to put people under law. Now, Dr. Michael Brown is adamantly against what he would call hyper-grace, which is the foundation of what our ministry is about. And I try to instill in all of you and myself on a continual basis, don't be critical of people who, are, who differ from you doctrinally. So Michael Brown is actually adamantly against the hyper-grace error, or what I call the biblical gospel. But that, just because he's against it does not mean he's not my brother in the Lord. And it does not mean that he doesn't have other good things to bring to the table. Amen? We should, we should be mature enough to be able to handle these. Paul talked in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, ending out the chapter there after he gave the descriptions of, of love. He said, when I was a child, I thought as a child. I reasoned as a child. I looked at things through the childish paradigm because how could I not? That's all I knew, you know. When all you know is all you know, that's all you know, you know. And then... He said, but when I matured, I put away childish reasoning and thinking and pro thought processes, you know. And so what Paul was saying there was the, the love of God is maturity, you know. There, there's no deeper revelation. There's nothing more great or more vast or whatever um, than the love of God. And so Paul equated love, God's love for us, and then that love working in us and through us for other people. He equated that to maturity. Now, Along with that, it's really interesting that we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 that the Corinthians were currently operating in the gifts of the Spirit. But Paul called them carnal. Isn't that interesting? The operating in the gifts of the Spirit are not a sign of spiritual maturity. All right? If... If one is spiritually mature, I believe they should operate in the gifts, but you don't have to be spiritually mature to operate in the gifts. Now, here's, now why is that important? Well, this is why that's important. Because a lot of times you have people who come out and minister, and there's healings and miracles and signs and wonders, but their doctrine is just goofy and crazy. Or you have people who come out and operate in the supernatural power of God. There's healings, deliverance, miracles, salvation, you name it, and then we find out two years later that they've been sleeping with the secretary for six months or whatever. And then so people think, 
what happens is because we don't understand this, people say, well, maybe all that stuff was fake. Maybe I just thought it was real because surely God wouldn't use someone like that. So we think that the gifts of the Spirit, the power of God, are somehow God's validation or stamp of approval on a minister. But the gifts of the Spirit operating through anyone are not God's stamp of approval on a minister or believer's conduct or doctrine. All right? Now, let me say that again just to make sure we get it. The power of God, the legitimate power of God operating through preacher or not, but any believer, is not God's stamp of approval on someone's doctrine or personal doctrine or their conduct. All right? God will flow through, in, well, he, I was going to say he will flow through imperfect vessels. He doesn't have any other choice. He's never had a perfect vessel besides Jesus, all right? So he doesn't have any other option here, you know? And so God will flow through, a per, now what did Jesus say? Whoever believes in these things can operate in this power. Not who, ha, not who lives up to almost perfect holiness or has near perfect doctrine. And so God will allow his... It, Romans 14 refers to what the Scripture calls the law of faith. All right? It's like electricity. We, you know, there's an outlet right there. My son, London, who is not mature mentally, emotionally, or physically, can tap into that power. You see what I'm saying? Spiritually, you don't have to be in a level of elevated maturity to tap into the power. It's a law. It's there. It's available for whoever believes in it. You know, I heard of a preacher... Um, he's, he's fairly well-known, uh, and he's extremely controversial, and um, uh, he's had a, a strong healing and miracle ministry for years and years and years and years. This man had an accident. Um, I believe it was at his home. Some way or another, his arm uh, went through his window, and uh, it was basically just hanging on by a thread, so to speak, his arm. And he was not born again, and through the process of time, it got worse and worse and worse, and um, I think Gain Green was setting up all that. It was really bad, and so his sister finally, who was a believer, convinced him, come with me to this meeting. There's this Pentecostal preacher in town. It's a tent meeting. Come. Uh, just see if the Lord will do something for you. He was not born again. The man goes to the meeting with his arm that's hanging on by a thread, so to speak, um, and in the meeting... He has an open vision, and in the, the vision, Jesus, there's a set of stairs, if I remember correctly, and he's the only one, as far as I know, that saw this. Uh, Jesus walks down the stairs, walks up to him, touches his arm, and, all the, and, now, and then this really happened. All the bandages and everything on his arm exploded off, and his arm was totally, instantly, supernaturally healed. Needless to say, he got saved. The very next day, the very next day, this man is walking uh, down the road in his hometown, he looks over in an alley, and there's a blind man, a blind, uh, I believe he was homeless. This guy who just got saved the, the day before walks up to him, grabs him by the hands, pulls him out of that dark alley, and by the time they get into the main street, the blind man's totally healed. Now, this man could not have been spiritually mature, I don't think, because he was saved for one day. But you see what I'm trying? I know I'm belaboring the point, but does it make sense? And hopefully that'll help you, because what happens is you look at some of the well-known ministers who, who had scandals, and lots of people lose heart and lose faith and that type of thing. They say, well, maybe I was just gullible and sucked into that thing, and maybe none of it was real. And no, maybe it was real. But we need to be mature enough to understand that our faith needs to be in God, not a preacher. Amen? Hallelujah. 
Okay, well, praise God, that helped me. I hope it helped you. I'll try to uh, move on here a little bit. But, but I really do. I think it's really important to understand that, all right? And so, and we are going to pick up in John 14 here, but it's just, it's really important for us to understand that these things are for whosoever will. And so, anyways, Dr. Michael Brown, uh, the debate, uh, charismatic gifts, um, I, I encourage people often, you know, be mature enough to handle the fact you know, for example, and I'm trying to, maybe I need to just quit trying to get away from stick on it for, for another moment here. For example, um, let's see here. Has everyone heard of, or raise your hand if you, if you do know who Andrew Womack is? Most of you. Okay, Andrew is a preacher. He's really strong on the love and grace of God, and he's strong in faith, his teaching, strong in faith and in this type of stuff, miracles and healings for today, all of that. Andrew is a good old boy from Texas. He wears a big belt buckle. He's always got boots on, and he, he is just as steady and cool, and he doesn't get excited outwardly. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't get worked up and preach, and he's, he's just a good old boy who loves Jesus and sees lots of results. You know what I mean? And um, then you take somebody like, uh, anybody know who T.D. Jakes is? Boy, T.D. Jakes can preach the house down. Rod Parsley, uh, you know, he's a strong preacher. You take any of these people who, you know, whatever. And what happens is, and I, I think it's, it's, an, it's just a misunderstanding, or I think it's perhaps a level of immaturity. People get to where they prefer one style over the other, which is fine to have a preference of style. But what's wrong is when we say, it, it can really happen both ways. Somebody says, well... I like the cool, calm, steady Andrew Womack type. He's not trying to be emotional. He's not trying to work it up. But the people like T.D. Jakes are too emotional. They're too worked up. When in reality, that's not the case. They're both operating the way God's designed them to operate. And then you have the people who say, no, I like the preaching. I like the, the he's excited about it. That tells me he's really excited and he's into it and he believes what he's saying. And uh, I don't like the boring, calm teacher types. Well, you know, for me, if I'm sick of dying with cancer, I don't care if they scream when they preach or if they whisper. If they can get me healed, I want to get healed. Amen. It's okay to have preferences, but don't cut yourself off from what would be blessings of God just because you prefer a certain style. All right? Then, on a whole other vein, has everyone heard of Charles Stanley? Charles Stanley is a phenomenal man of God. First Baptist Church of Atlanta. Uh, Brother Stanley uh, was raised in Pentecostal holiness and clearly is not in that vein of thought now, nor has he been throughout the course of his ministry. So Brother Stanley uh, would not put the emphasis on the Holy Ghost, tongues, power of God like we do. You understand what I'm saying? But I love to listen to Charles Stanley. There, there's seldom, you know, mo I, I won't say necessarily most of the time, but very often if I'm flipping, flipping through channels and I see In Touch Ministries or Charles Stanley, I stop and listen and I get blessed at, immensely. Baptist or not, that's my brother in the Lord. You don't have to talk to tongues to go to heaven. You know what I'm saying? That's my blood-washed brother in the Lord, and I can receive from him. Now, if he teaches against something like this, and I've heard him do it, that doesn't offend me. That doesn't make me say, well, I don't like him. No. I'm just going to disregard that part that I don't agree with. You know what I'm saying? And receive the good. And we should be mature enough as believers to have that attitude about us. We shouldn't have to... It, it, it really... It almost annoys me, but... Not too bad. You hear, you know, well, what do you think about so-and-so preacher? Oh, I don't agree with him on everything, but he's pretty good. Well, I didn't ask you if you agreed with him on everything. Nobody agrees with everybody. No one agrees with anyone on everything. I don't agree with myself half the time. 
You know, what I, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes you can't get along with yourself, you know. And then even, you know, I've been preaching for, I don't know, eight and a half years now. And there's things that I taught, you know, earlier on and, and even recently that now I wouldn't agree with. Why? Because none of us are perfect. Hopefully we're ever learning and ever growing. You know what I'm saying? And so none of us have this thing all together, you know. And so it's good to be mature enough. And so again, with Dr. Brown... Uh, he would say that what we put the emphasis on here is error, but regardless of that, he's a wonderful man of God, and, and he uh, puts a strong defense on many things, and I think if you listen to that debate, um, it will bless you tremendously and shed some light on some things. And the other minister whom he's debating, um, and it's very, cordial, it's very um, mature and nice, the debate is, there's nothing ill or uh, host hostile towards one another. Um, perhaps some of you, you know, I've always believed in the, in the Holy Ghost stuff, um, perhaps some of you who haven't can more identify with the other minister who does not believe in the modern-day operation, whom he's debating, uh, of the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, but can see some light that Dr. Brown shares. So it's just really good, all right? I I've never given that long of a promo on a sermon like that, I don't think, or a, a thing like that, but hopefully it'll bless you if you listen to it. John 14, moving on. All right, now check this out. Let's look here. Let's start. Let's just start here. And man, John 14 is, you could just live there. It's so good. But let's start in verse oh, 6, I guess. John 14, 6. I was going to start in 12, but we're going to just back up a little bit. Jesus said unto him, because they just said, Lord, if you show us the way, then we'll really believe. And then he said, verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't, we don't know where you're going, and you know, we don't know how to get there. Verse 6, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes unto the Father except he comes through me. Verse 7, if you had known me, you should have known the Father also. And from here, henceforth or here on out, you do know him and have seen him. Now look at verse 8. Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and then that will suffice. Then we'll really believe you. you know? Verse 9, Jesus said unto him, have I been with you this long and yet, you still don't really get it? You still don't really know who I am, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Woo! Don't you love that? <laughs> that just makes me so happy I can't hardly stand it. Jesus is the image of God. All right? And, you know, very often I, I've heard it said that, you know, the law revealed God's nature. But, you know, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law did not reveal the goodness of the nature of God. It revealed the badness of the nature of sinful man. Amen. All right? And so Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And we see, we see this in the Scriptures. We, we see times, um, and I mention this very often, but it's good to be reminded, like in the Gospel of Luke, you know, we see where Jesus is going through a town, and they wouldn't receive him because they could tell he, he wasn't stopping. He was going through. And the sons of thunder said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire on them, call down judgment on them? And Jesus rebuked them. And yet they were standing. They had Old Testament Scripture to stand on for that. But Jesus rebuked them and said, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. Under the law, that was valid and operative. But the Son of Man, the book of James says, the law works wrath. So that was valid for that covenant for that time. But Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save men's lives. All right? So the law didn't reveal God. Jesus revealed God. Moving on. 
All right, so verse 10, Jesus says, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I do not speak of myself, but the Father who dwells in me, he does the works. Now, did you see that? The Father who dwells in me, he does the works. Now, that is super important for us to understand because Jesus is saying here that the power of God that operated through him was not of his own deity, even though he was God in the flesh. All right? Now, I don't know how to say this in a better way. I, hopefully, I can say this clearly enough. In order for our redemption to be valid, Jesus had to redeem us as a man. Does that make sense? And that is very clearly established throughout all the New Testament. Um, there's many places the book of Hebrew really lays it out quite clearly. Um, you know, there's other places. The, um, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrew says repeatedly that this man, after he offered himself for the sacrifice of our sins, sat down forever at the right hand of God. So, so Jesus, who was 100% God and 100% man once he became a man, operated not as God to perform the miracles, but he operated as a man anointed by the Holy Spirit. All right? Now, we, we're not probably going to have time to turn there, but for example, Acts chapter 10, verse 38, if you want to look that up, says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. All right? Now, think about that. If Jesus is God in the flesh, and we know he was, then why would he need God the Father to anoint him? Well, quite clearly, because Jesus set his operating out of his deity aside and chose to operate as a man. Again, if he didn't, our redemption could not be valid. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me say it this way. Man let sin into the world, right? Adam and Eve, the, the, the federal headship, the, the father of all humanity, father and mother. Well, since man let sin in, man had to take sin out. And that's why, one reason why the book of Hebrews says it's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins, all right? So if I, you know, if I, um, if Chris, if I owed Chris $100, she loaned me $100 and I'm going to pay you back in two weeks. If I come to her in two weeks and say, here's your payment, and I give her 100 pencils, she's not going to accept that because it's not equal currency, all right? Leviticus 16, uh, uh, maybe 17, says the life of the flesh is in the blood, all right? So human blood, the essence of our life, let sin in. Therefore, human blood, the blood of Jesus, had to take sin out. That makes sense? So again, Jesus operated as a man anointed by the Spirit of God. If Jesus operated the miracle ministry as God, we couldn't have legal grounds necessarily to operate in the power of God like he did, all right? Does that make sense? Okay, good. <laughs> now, let's keep, keep reading here. Or let me finish Acts 10, 38 for you. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. So we see there the good works of God are healing and the oppressive works of the devil are sickness. And Jesus went about. And notice it says Jesus of Nazareth. Again, reiterating his humanity. All right? how God anointed this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Jesus identified himself as a man, son of God, son of man, right? Amen. Okay, hallelujah. Moving on here. Verse 11, he says, Believe me 
that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else belief for the very works' sake. Now look at that. The, the works, the supernatural works, are supposed to be a signpost for unbelievers. So it's really interesting to me. I don't know if we'll have time to, to go there today. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when he was giving proper order for the gifts of the Spirit, he, was, he specifically got to teaching on two of the gifts of the Spirit, the supernatural tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Now, when Paul was giving proper order of, the, of the, those two gifts, tongues and interpretation of tongues, Paul specifically said that tongues, speaking in tongues with interpretation of tongues, is a sign for the unbeliever. Now, that is phenomenal because most of the closet charismatics, as I call them, who don't let the Holy Ghost operate in Sunday morning main services, they restrict the manifestation of the Holy Spirit because they're afraid it'll scare unbelievers off. But Paul said, specifically, the gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues serves as a sign for the unbeliever. Now, that's, that's one, that led to my dad, his salvation. My dad uh, started going to a church. He wasn't born again yet. And he started going to this church, and it was like a midweek prayer meeting that they had. And dad wasn't saved. And he didn't know the people there. He just kind of showed up and was kind of there, you know. Had been coming there, I think, maybe just very briefly. And so they're in that midday prayer thing. And at one point, I think they would all join hands and get in a circle. wasn't very many of them. And would take turns praying and, who knows, praying for church, America, each other, whatever. And we're praying. And while they were praying, uh, these people who did not know my dad, they were holding hands. And one person had a tongues come up out of them. And they spoke the tongues forth. And another person had an interpretation of tongues. And the interpretation, and I have no idea what the exact words were. I'm sure Dan could tell you better. Um, but the essence of the interpretation was this. All, you know, those of you who are here, say, say that you love me. Say that you are of me. But all of you here are not of me, more or less. Revealing to, you know, can you imagine being the only person in there that's not born again? And dad had to be thinking, they know it's me. They know it's me. They know. But that ministered to my dad. That let him know God was real in their midst because they didn't know him. They could, you know what I'm saying? And so they, they could have just assumed he's at this small midweek prayer group. I mean, he probably is a Christian. They didn't know that. You know what I mean? And, so, and that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, that when this gift is operating properly, part of the purpose that it can serve is it will show the unbeliever, and this is what Paul says, that God is truly in your midst because this gift can reveal the secrets of the hearts of men. Is that just phenomenal? That just that is phenomenal. And yet we're told it'll scare people off. Oh, go ahead. Um, not necessarily, um, because uh, there are diversities of tongues, and so that's uh, we we read that there in chapter twelve, um, diversities of tongues and interpretation of tongues. So there are multiple diversities of tongues. Um, now, let me, let me, good question. For example, in, you guys remember after the resurrection, Jesus, and somebody can throw it out there, I can't remember if it was at the end of Luke, it may have been around the end of John, I'm not sure, but Jesus appears to his disciples and breathes on them, that's what scripture, he breathes on them and, and said, receive you the Holy Ghost, if you guys remember that account. So when he said that, 
that was when they were born again. All right? A lot of people try to say they were born again in Acts chapter 2. They were not born again in Acts chapter 2. They had already been born of the Spirit of God when Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive you the Holy Ghost. Now, that's when they were born again. But Jesus told them, Go to Jerusalem, uh, wait on the promise of the Father, which was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, when they get there, we see the 120 were all in the upper room, and see, which again shows us tongues was not just for the apostles. There were a lot of people in that upper room. All right? So they're in that upper room. And it says, as a mighty rushing wind, the Spirit of God blew in their midst, which is just cool to me. And uh, you guys know the story. They were baptized in the Holy Ghost. Now, when they came out, they started speaking. Now, now this is really interesting. This is one of the diverse, and I'm answering your question. This is one of the diversities of tongues. They began to speak in language, human languages that they had no natural knowledge of. So supernaturally, by the Spirit of God within them, like, and, and I know people who this has happened to, um, I have a friend, or, uh, I've met him, he's not really a friend, a minister person I know, out of Oklahoma, uh, I know lots of people who have operated in this, for example, um, who has spoken, I, I forget all the language, I think he's spoken in French, Russian, German, you know, he travels overseas. And so to him, he's, you know, he'll be in a prayer line. He's laying hands on people, praying for people, just praying in his, what he thinks is his own personal tongues, prayer language. And as he's doing it, unbeknownst to him, he'll be speaking in fluent Russian. And there will be three people in the crowd who speak Russian. And God will reveal something. I'm not talking some maybe kind of sort of. I'm talking detailed information to them that they can't deny. And they come up and say, man, I didn't know that you knew Russian. And he said, oh, I, didn't know, I don't know Russian. Now, that's what happened in Acts chapter 2. We see that they began to supernaturally speak in human languages that they had no knowledge of. Does that make sense? I can't speak Russian, all right? But the Spirit of God could work through me by His anointing and speak fluent Russian through me. Now, I've heard story after story after story after story of this happening. Now, that's one of the diversities of tongues. Some people I have heard say it's not very common. It's not as common I have heard some people say, well, that's the only, that's what speaking in tongues was. was. It's not this gibberish stuff that people do today, and then they try to interpret it. Turn with me, we'll, we'll, we'll segue here. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14. I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now, again, there are diversities of tongues, all right? Now, check this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Follow after charity, or the love, God kind of love, and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. Now check this out. For he that speaks in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men. So clearly, this is not the diversity of tongues that men hear in their own language. Now, it said in Acts chapter 2, as they were speaking supernaturally in tongues or in human languages that they had no knowledge of, that people from many different places were there hearing them speak in their own language. All right? So we know clearly that's not, that was supernatural. All right? But check this out. So in other words, those men understood them. All right? But this says, he who speaks in an unknown tongue. Well, Russian is not an unknown tongue. 
Tongue just means language in the King James and the Greek. Uh, French is not an, un, it might be unknown to me, but it's not an unknown tongue. Very common. And you just, go, you just go through the list. That makes sense, right? But this specifies there is such a thing as an unknown tongue. All right? For he that speaks in an unknown ten, tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. All right? Then he says this, for no man understands him. How be it, or this is how it be, in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. Now, stick with me here. I'm still answering her question. Great question. But he who prophesies speaks unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. So right there we see a qualification on the gift of prophecy. All right? The gift of prophecy is for edification, exhortation, and comfort. That's a little side point, but let's move on. Verse 4. He that speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself. All right? So this is very specifically what I call your personal prayer language or your personal prayer language of tongues. Praying in tongues, now again, I'm, I'm taking the, the broad route to answer the question, but I think it's necessary. Understanding, as Paul says in at least two different places in 1 Corinthians 12, maybe three actually, that there are diversities of tongues. Now you say, well, man, that, I don't get that. Well, think about this. There's diversities. Um, Paul called healings. He called it the gifts of healings. Now think about that. So that means there's diversities of, of healings. All right? So what does that mean? Well, you know, there could be, I have a friend in Virginia, a wonderful man of God, who operates in power of God, and one of the gifts of healings that accompanies him regularly is deaf ears. People, I've been in his services and seen people totally deaf get healed, all right? Um, and then trying to think of maybe other, uh, uh, Kenneth Hagan, Brother Hagan, was really strong. He had a gift of healing for growths, tumors, growths, lumps, cancerous, whatever. He, God used him in a particularly strong in that gift. So you could say gifts of healings or diversities of healing gifts, all right? Same thing with tongues. There's, there's scripturally set and identified diversities of tongues. Now, this gift of tongues here that Paul is referring to, now look at verse 4 once again. He that speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself. So your personal prayer language of tongues is for the purpose of supernatural edification, all right? Now, for me, after I got baptized in the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues, I prayed in tongues consistently, basically on a daily basis, not necessarily two hours a day. I'm just saying generally every day I would exercise that gift on my own, uh, in my personal. I didn't go around spouting off in tongues at Walmart. Like Brother Hagin used to say, people would think you were a nut, and you would be. You know, it's, there's proper, Paul sets boundaries for how these gifts are to operate. So I exercise the, my personal prayer language of edification, tongues for edification, whatever you want to call it, um, for about a year. And I woke up one day, I don't know how else to say this any better, but it's like after exercising that gift in my own personal daily devotional prayer time, it's like I woke up one day, and the ability to operate in the gifts of the Spirit was just there. I edified myself to that place. You can't make yourself operate in the gifts of the Spirit just because, per se. 
There's, there's, you know, you got to believe it's the will of God, that type of thing. You, you know, am I making sense? People who don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit are getting exactly what they believe. They're not operating in it. They're not seeing healing. They don't believe in healing, so they get the fruit of their faith. They're not seeing any healing or anything like that. Now, there is this personal prayer language of tongues. Now, let's keep reading here. Verse 5. I would that you all spoke with tongues, but rather that you prophesied. Now, why is that? Well, Paul just told us, praying in tongues edifies me. Praying in an unknown tongue edifies me. But the gift of prophecy, which is a supernatural utterance in a known language, edifies the church. So if I walk up to Jerry and look at her eyeball to eyeball and just start talking in tongues, it's not going to do a bit of good for her. It builds me up. She might think I'm a little goofy, but it's not going to build her up because that's my personal prayer language of tongues. But if I prophesy a divine utterance in a known tongue, then that will build everyone up because you know what I'm saying, clearly. But look at this. I would that you all spoke with tongues, but rather that you prophesied. For greater is he who prophesies than he who speaks in tongues, except he interprets the tongues, that the church may then receive edifying. So what's that mean? Well, he just made a distinction between two operations of tongues. Paul said, if I speak in tongues, my personal tongues, that diversity of tongues, that's for my own edification. But there is a gift of tongues, another diversity. That is for the edifying of the church, which according to that verse is basically equivalent to the gift of prophecy. Now, and that's the diversity that she's refer, referred to, the, what I just call it, tongues, and what Paul called the interpretation of tongues. All right? So notice the interpretation of tongues, as we read earlier, is one of the gifts of the Spirit. All right? Now, let me just throw this out there. It's not a translation. It's an interpretation. Now, in Acts chapter 2, and, and I'll, I'll elaborate on that. In Acts chapter 2, when they spoke supernaturally in known human languages that the hearers could understand, nobody interpreted that. They didn't need an interpretation. Why would they need an interpretation? If somebody came in here today that didn't know English at all, maybe they were you know, from Russia, spoke Russian, didn't know any English, they came in here, and they supernaturally spoke in English, we wouldn't need anybody to translate that or interpret that. They spoke it in a way we could hear and understand. We know that language. Supernatural to him, to, to God to speak through him that way, but we wouldn't need somebody standing next to him interpreting. Does that make sense? But there is a tongue that requires interpretation. Now, that, that's the gift she's referring to. That tongue, that diversity of tongues, you might call it tongues for public assembly. Some people call it that way. I think it's fine to call it that way. That requires an interpretation. Now, we don't have time to elaborate on all of it. Paul goes on in this chapter and elaborates the proper guidelines for these gifts. Because you could say, well, anybody can just stand up and spout off in tongues. Even if tongues is real, anybody could stand up and spout off in tongues and somebody else could just interpret it. And who's going to know whether it was really God or not? Well, Paul gives guidelines. Paul gives clear instructions on how we know whether it's of the flesh Maybe they, maybe they were well-meaning, they were excited, they were caught up in the moment, but maybe it wasn't exactly really from God for them to speak forth that tongues. All right? The, at that point, the leadership of the church should be mature enough to discern 
whether it's of God or just them, for whatever reason, doing it on their own. Maybe they're excited. I have seen people who do that stuff uh, disruptively and out of order and, and under uh, really just demonically. Not that their tongues was of the devil, but the way they operate that gift, they were so far outside of the boundaries of how they wanted to take over the service. They wanted to take over everything. Just You know what I'm saying? So there is a tongues. I know this is like the really long way, okay? I hope it's okay. Hopefully, we're, hopefully everything I'm saying along the path Hallelujah, is beneficial and helpful, all right? So, we see scripturally at least a few different diversities or operations of tongues. Acts chapter 2, where a person can speak in a language, a human language, that they have no knowledge of, but they can do it by the Spirit of God, Acts chapter 2. Then we see uh, in many places, including 1 Corinthians chapter 14, turn with me to Acts 19, I want you to see something. Maybe this will, will help what I'm trying to say. I, I feel like I'm saying it basically clearly enough. Um, I'm just trying to cover as many angles as I can. Acts chapter 19. And we are about to close. So we see here, Acts 2, supernaturally speak in a human language you have no knowledge of. We see in 1 Corinthians 14 that there's a diversity of tongues for personal edification. All right? Now, that diversity of tongues that we're about to look at here in Acts chapter 19 is the one that really we can govern at any time we want to. Your own, what I call, personal prayer language, you're in control of. All right? So you can pray in tongues as much as you want to, when you want to, whatever. There are some people who say, well, there is tongues, but you have to be in the Spirit. Well, not your personal prayer language. That's a gift God gave you for personal edification, all right? I, I couldn't make myself operate in the gifts of the Spirit just because I wanted to. You have to want to. Paul said, covet earnestly the best gifts, desire the gifts of the Spirit. That's a part of it. But praying in tongues brought me to the place to where I could operate in the gifts of the Spirit. It edified me. It built me up to that place, all right? <clears throat> then there's the diversity of tongues that Paul says, as he's going back and forth in chapter 14, of tongues and interpretation of tongues. All right? So that's a diversity. So we see that one pretty clearly. That's maybe the one people are most somewhat familiar with, tongues for public assembly. Someone gives forth a supernatural tongue. Someone else gives the interpretation of it. Now, I said a minute ago that it is interpretation, not just translation. All right? So what, that, what I mean by that is someone could stand up and by the unction and anointing and will of God give forth a supernatural tongue in public assembly in an unknown language. Let's say they gave a tongue's message that lasted for 30 seconds. All right? Then another person by the unction and the Spirit of God could give forth the interpretation, but maybe the interpretation is three minutes long. Or vice versa. The tongues could be in three minutes and the interpretation only be 30 seconds. Well, it's not a word-for-word -word translation. It's an interpretation. Does that make sense? You're interpreting the, the, what Paul called in Romans 8, the mind of the Spirit, the essence of what he said. Now, this is really interesting to me. Here's how that happens. Because God, when you speak in tongues, God does not take over your mind and body and make you just... Uh, and. You're conscious and cognizant and aware of what's going on. 
All right? I've had friends tell me, believers love Jesus. Man, I, I was raised this, that, or the other, and I, I don't know if I want to go. to Somebody invited me to a charismatic or a Pentecostal church. I don't know if I want to go because, sure enough, I'm the one that God will make speak in tongues. I've, they've told, I've, I, I can remember specifically people telling me that. And when I was little, I thought that. I would be in service and somebody would speak in tongues. God, don't make me do that, please. You know, I didn't understand that. Well, God won't make anybody speak in tongues any more than he'll make anyone get saved. You know, it's something you have to put faith in and choose to receive and operate in. And it's got to be a gift on your life. All that type of stuff, all right? So th that's in essence. Now, I have seen this happen. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul said, When someone speaks in tongues and interprets or prophesies, let the leadership and the spiritually mature people judge whether that was of God or not. Now, here's what happens. How do you do that? Well, here's one way that can happen. Number one, does it line up with Scripture? That's the, that's the main safeguard on everything. Tongues and interpretation, doctrine, revelation, vision, everything. We base it on primarily New Testament Scripture. All right? Then here's another way this happens. I have been in church services. Now, when I used to work at Norville's ministry in Tennessee, you know, we would start worshiping and say 10 minutes into worship, um, it would come to me, it would come up in my spirit. I knew that I knew that I knew that in about 15 to 30 minutes, there's going to be a tongues come forth. And then I would start to get the revelation of what the interpretation would be. And maybe the Lord was going to exhort us in the interpretation something about, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm in your midst. I love you. Healing belongs to you. I want to minister. It could it just be any number of things, all right? Now, I would know that there was going to be a tongues and I knew that. I didn't, this isn't something that goofy charismatics get up and talk to each other about. And, oh, let's do a tongues. This is real. This is God. This isn't pre-planned and stuff people are making up, okay? Now, um, and I would know spe specifically, but in my own way of thinking, what the interpretation would be. Well, 15 to 30 minutes later, somebody would stand up, give a tongues. I already had the essence of what the interpretation was going to be. That doesn't necessarily mean that I had to be the one to give the interpretation. But Paul said, let the spiritually mature people judge whether this word is really from God or not. Well, that was one way I could judge that as a member of leadership at that ministry, that well, they said exactly what I knew 30 minutes ago was going to be said. I, you know, brother so-and-so gave the word today, and sister so-and-so spoke the tongues, and brother so-and-so gave the interpretation, and I knew 30 minutes ago the essence of what they were going to say. God was going to exhort us today that sickness is not belong to us, that healing belongs to us, and to stand fast in His word, to hold fast to our confession, just whatever, and that would be more or less exactly, not word for word, but exactly what was said. So that's one way we can judge whether that's of God or not. Now, when I used to, I used to, very often, I would what we call MC the services. Somebody, in, you know, welcomes everybody there today, then you have worship, then the MC takes it and does the announcements and takes up the offering and then, you know, closes, turns it over to the preacher. Well, as the MC, it was very common that during worship, I would understand, I would know in my spirit, by the Spirit of God, that there was going to be what I just described, a tongues and interpretation, and already had the essence of what it was going to be. It was not uncommon at all. I would come up to the pulpit, and without even having previously spoken to whoever, I would say, Brother so-and-so, do you have a word from the Lord? Because I knew, well, how do you know that, Jordan? Well, I don't, that's the part I don't really know how to explain. Get to know the Holy Ghost. <laughs> all right? It's supernatural knowledge. It's Jesus in uh, John chapter 4 talked to, spoke to a woman at a well. You guys remember that account? Well, he began to give her 
factual, accurate knowledge, detailed knowledge about her life. Well, how did he do that? He didn't know her from what we see, and we know they didn't. It was, you see, it was that revelation, that knowledge was given to him by the Spirit of God. All right? Well, it's kind of the same way. I knew by revelation from the Spirit of God that there's a tongue, there's an interpretation. I'm going to ask Brother So-and-so to give it. I perceive that he has the Word. So I, so I call on him. He's mature. He gives forth the Word. All right? That is the longest answer you probably could have gotten to that question. I hope it wasn't too much rambling. And it'll be posted on the website so you can go back and listen to more. Anybody to it again? Any, yeah, that's fine. And I'm glad you asked it. Okay, I, I'm glad she asked that, and I, I should probably encourage you guys to ask questions in these teachings along the way, um, because um, just questions that you'll have that I won't necessarily think of to address along the way. So long story short, there's diversities of tongues. The tongues that is supposed to be used in public assembly is the one that is supposed to be accompanied by a divine, supernatural interpretation. All right, we're going to close with this, Acts chapter 19. I just want you to see this one thing really quickly. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus and found certain disciples. Now look at verse 2. Paul said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed. These were people who were born again. Now, I've heard the argument that there is no second blessing. You got all the Holy Ghost you ever going to get when you got saved. Well, I would agree with that statement that you got all the Holy Ghost that you're ever going to get when you got born again. But, you know, one way I've heard it said, it's one thing to be born of the Spirit. It's another thing to be filled with the Spirit or baptized in the Spirit. So, Charles Stanley, who does not speak in tongues, has just as much of the Holy Ghost as I have. All right? Now, I think there's reasons why God made speaking in tongues a secondary event. All right? I think, number one, was because if you had to speak in tongues to get saved, there'd be a lot less people getting saved. Because it just so freaks people's mind out when they don't understand it. I'm not going up there and speaking in that gibberish language. Uh-uh. Well, God made it so simple, all you had to do is believe in His Son. Now, there are extra blessings waiting for you if you want them. And this is what's describing right here. Paul said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? These people were born again. But there's a subsequent experience in the Holy Spirit right here. And they said unto him, We've not even heard of anything like the Holy Ghost. But Paul said they were believers since you believed. So they were born again, but they just didn't have any knowledge. What were they? They were 1 Corinthians 12, 1, ignorant, unknowledged, untaught, the things of the Spirit. Verse 3, and he said unto them, well, what were you, how were you baptized? Well, we were water baptized, you know, John's baptism. Then Paul said, John verily baptized the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him who should come, that is Christ. Now look at verse 5. Check this out. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now look at verse 6. And when Paul had laid hands on them. Well, nobody has to lay hands on you to get saved. 
As a matter of fact, I would suppose the vast majority of salvations, people aren't getting hands laid on them. I suppose. It can happen. People come up, the preacher prays for them, shakes their hands, whatever. But you, that's not what he's saying here, right? And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, then the Holy Ghost came on them. How do you know? The next verse, the evidence of the Holy Ghost. And they spake with tongues and prophesied. So we see really clearly right here that there is a subsequent experience. Okay? Um, a subsequent experience from the new birth. Um, God doesn't force it on people. It does not make a person less saved if they don't have it. It doesn't make a person more saved if they do have it. It doesn't make God love a person more or less if they do or don't have it. It's just a blessing that's available to whosoever will. It, there's no indication here. It said that Paul found uh, uh, just believers there. So there's no indication that these were apostles. There's no indication that this was a special select group whom God gave that for for a short period of time but that somehow it would pass away. There's no, absolutely no indication of that whatsoever. So we see here, again, along with many other scriptural verifications, for example, the Corinthian church, Paul told them, we just read it a few minutes ago, I would that you all spoke with tongues. Then we get to the very last, ver next ver last verse or next to last verse in 1 Corinthians 14 where he says, forbid not speaking with tongues. So we see upon... Uh, clear scriptural teaching that this, this is for believers, not just apostles or early church, all right? Um, one thing that's really interesting, for those of you who listened to that, that debate between Dr. Brown and the other gentleman, uh, Dr. Brown challenges the other minister who does not believe a cessationist. He believes these things have ceased. He challenges him, give me one New Testament verse that explicitly states these things have ceased or will cease. And through the hour and 30, 40, whatever, five-minute debate, he doesn't. Why? Because he can't. Why? Because there isn't one. As a matter of fact, Dr. Brown asks him, because they have a, a, a chance to question one another, he's, he challenges him again and says, is there one single verse you can give? The other minister says, well, I don't have to. His response, and then he's saying, you know, I can deduct it from this verse and that verse and that verse. Well, you can deduct anything you want when you take verses out of context. There's one verse in the Bible that says Judas hanged himself. There's another verse in the Bible that says, go ye and do likewise. Literally, those two verses are in the Bible. You can take anything out of context and make it say anything you want to say. You know what I'm saying? But clear cut, as in, in my typical teaching style, we don't usually just pull out one verse. We look at verse upon verse, uh, at least and establish some context. It's just, it's not in there. So uh, let me say, I really, I'm glad Jerry asked that question. And let me encourage you guys. Um, and maybe I just didn't think of it before, to ask questions along the way um, uh, as we're going through some of this, all right? 